A remote fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. Stein's new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic, The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in for an Englishman in an absurd, fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein. Available in hardback and digital editions or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. December 6th, 2023, the season of Advent. Christmas at Stein Online, and that means it's time for our spectacular Marshmallow World intro, as played by the Mark Stein Show Band. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time, 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30 p.m. in fabulous Newfoundland, and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev. Kiev. Uh, could be back to being Kiev very soon because Zelensky is furious that all the focus now is not on Kiev, but on Tel Aviv. And he is most unhappy. 11 p.m. in Moscow, 11.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who move to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who move to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 4 a.m. In Singapore and Honkers, I'm sorry about that. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, still kind of sorry. 9 a.m. in Auckland, which is a far more civilized hour for the kippers and kedgery and even deeper into thursday in his majesty's dominions across the pacific it is great to be back with you for our first show of december we shall have some festive content on today's show lots of breaking news at this hour mostly people resigning uh so i don't know how excited you get about that or whether you're going to miss them on one side of the Atlantic, in Washington, the dethroned Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has quit Congress. He will leave 
within a month. In London, the immigration minister Robert Jenrick has quit and there's talk that Rishi Sunak's ministry is imploding and that he'll soon be gone. As for me, I'm in a goodish mood. My uh, my darling daughter is with me, flew in from Zanzibar uh, today. Uh, 101 years ago today, uh, the Irish Free State came into existence. Boy, what a waste of time that was. A century and a smidgenette all for nothing in the last two decades. The Irish have imported so many non-Irish that they will be a minority in their own country by mid-century. 34 years ago today, 14 Quebecois women died in the so-called Montreal Massacre, the École Polytechnique. Uh, If you're wondering about the perp, and you probably aren't if you've uh, read me in After America and various essays over the years, Uh, The pup was called Marc Lepine. God, these awful misogynist Perlen Quebecers are, but actually, he changed his name to Marc Lepine from Gamil Garbi, an Algerian Muslim. So, just like this week's stabbing rampage at the Eiffel Tower, where the killer changed his name from Iman Rajabpour Mayandoab to Armand Croissant. It's the Christmas season at Stein Online. Special programming all through Advent, including a brand new Serenade Radio Song of the Week this weekend. And check out the Stein Store. We've got lots of fun stuff, including, of course, The Prisoner of Windsor, my latest book, uh, which is proving highly prescient, all the way down uh, to the internal contradictions at the Pride Parade, which came up this week in that memorable video of the British imam. Uh, which we uh, put up, uh, I think, on Monday it was. Um, uh, Aside from that, we also have our limited edition Stein Online Liberty Stick. I sign and number each one, and all proceeds go to support the ruinous costs of the Mann versus Stein case. The trial has been rescheduled for January 16th at the District of Columbia Superior Court. So one way or another, we're going to get this sucker done. Uh, Oh, and don't forget the ultimate Christmas present for your loved one, a stateroom on the Mark Stein Caribbean cruise, a week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse with Ava Velardingerbrook, Conrad Black, Leilani Dowding, Bo Snurdly, Michelle Buckman. Uh, Go to MarkSteinCruise.com for more info on that. Okay, let us get to uh, your uh, questions. Uh, Oh, what was the one I... I thought this was actually a good one to start with. It's from Bill Decker. Bill says, Dear Mark, which of these science fiction writers made the best prediction of our present and likely future situation? Uh, George Orwell, 1984. Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. E.M. Forster, The Machine Stops. H.G. Wells, The Time Machine. Or is it more like Jean Raspail's Camp of the Saints, which isn't sci-fi, but does predict a future? I'd like to point out that most of these stories are available as tales for our time, accessible as part of a membership in the Mark Stein Club. Better health and clear thinking in the days ahead, says Bill Decker. Yeah, you're right, we've done audio adaptations of all those. George Orwell, 1984, H.G. Wells, The Time Machine... 
EM Forster, the machine stops. We haven't done uh, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. We we couldn't get the uh, the rights uh, for that. But um, uh, and we've also done my version of H.G. Uh, Wells, my variation on his theme, uh, Out of Time, uh, which is over there. They all got aspects of it right. Um, as we now say, they all and they were putting aside Camp of the Saints for the moment, but basically all these futuristic dystopias were written within half a century, from H.G. Uh, Wells in the eighteen nineties to George Orwell in the late nineteen forties, and they all got aspects of it right, um, big important aspects. Orwell's is the most conventional view of a totalitarian future. And it has one uh, great insight into it, it, considering that it was written at the beginning of the television era, um, in that he foresaw a time that the television would watch you, which is what happens now. Uh, the government collects information in metaform, but it means they can, you know, if when they need to, they can figure out every single website you go to, um, and that idea of 24-7 surveillance, that you're nowhere are you not being surveilled. Uh, people accept that the telephone is with you all the time. The telephone knows where you are. And so the people who regulate the telephone companies uh, know where you are too. The car that can tell you how to get from A to B also lets the authorities know that you've gone from A to B. So George Orwell got that 24-7 panopticon surveillance world absolutely right. Aldous Huxley, uh, with the idea of soma, uh, that we are, are seduced into, that we are sensually distracted so that we don't realize we're slaves. And I think that's uh, I, I just see that Time magazine has announced that Taylor Swift is its person of the year. Uh, we, we've in, in the, the sensual distractions now are all around. As you know, they've supplanted human relationships. That's the thing that E.M. Forster got right, which is incredible because he's not thought of as a sci-fi writer or anything. But in whatever it was, 1911, when he wrote that short story, he basically predicted the Internet and he predicted the atomized society that would come with that, that people would increasingly choose to sit in a room uh, and be plugged in uh, to something that supposedly offers all kinds of uh, education and entertainment possibilities. But in practice, its main uh, effect is to completely atomize society to the point where it's more and more difficult for, as you'll know, when particularly the social media generation, people who were born around 2005 or so, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult to form human relations. And then we have H.G. Wells, the time machine, and his great insight, which is highly relevant uh, to the world we live in today, is, was the dissolution of the two sexes and the merger of the two sexes, uh, so that men, women uh, are completely indistinguishable. And we see that it would played a big part, obviously, in my variation 
on his theme, the abolition of the biological sexes. And for, for those of you who say, oh, what's with all this big picture stuff, talking about airy-fairy novels? Um, well, I see that Nikki Haley just gave a totally disastrous answer, I think, to most of the Republican primary base about a 12-year-old girl uh, wanting a sex change. And her thing is that that's the sort of thing uh, that should be left to uh, her parents. No, I, her parents. No, this idea that uh, this idea that the parents can decide their twelve-year-old girl is in fact a twelve-year-old boy. This is this is the big the abolition of biological sex, which they're doing for a reason. And I always talk about there's people who've said push back because it was a harmless. Uh, eccentricity for, for it was something that I, I've always said I don't believe anyone should transition unless you're in show business because only if you exist at that sort of heightened level heightened reality hyper reality in your life anyway uh, is it something even worth considering so it's one thing if you're like some showgirl packing a little extra in your in your uh, basque or camisole, that's one thing. But when it gets to forty percent of your uh, your uh, kids' middle school class, forty percent of the girls deciding that they're boys, some kind of uh, revolution against God is underway. It was a big. I forget who made this. I think it was Laura Rosen Cohen made this point. When the um, Pope decided to meet with transgender sex workers. That's prostitutes, by the way. Sex workers. I don't know why the Pope is, is signing on to the idea that that's a legitimate profession. But the point is, when you're signing on to the idea that trans sex workers is a legitimate profession, when you, when you, uh, when you basically say that your sex is something that you decide um, you are playing God and the Pope shouldn't be uh, going along with that at all. Then what was the, oh, Jean Raspail's Camp of the Saints. Yes, people hate this. The left hate this. Every, if you even so much as mention the book, every time I've mentioned the book on Rush or uh, I've mentioned the book on uh, Tucker, as I have, you know, once every two, three years, whatever it was, uh, the, the weenies at Media Man, oh, Stein mentions racist book. He must be a totally racy, racy, racist because he mentioned the racist. None of these people have read the book. None of these people have read the book, which is a bigger point as well. We live in a totally moronic age where literary criticism is now the preserve of illiterate wankers who basically think you should be cancelled for mentioning the name of a book, which, by the way, when they tweet about me mentioning it, they're mentioning it too. The question is, Jean Raspail was a highly intelligent man. Before he did that, he used to go off and make documentaries um, in uh, Latin America about tribes who became extinct. And then he started thinking, huh, what if the same thing is actually happening in my beloved France? Uh, the reasons why, the, the, the lack of the innovation of societies. And he wrote a book that is literally being, that these people washing up on the southern shore of France, just as in real life, 
They're washing up on the southern shore of America at the Rio Grande or the southern shore of uh, the United Kingdom uh, on the, uh, in the English Channel. So it's literally happening. And yet the left say, oh, well, you can't talk about it. Racy, racy, racist. So boring. So bloody boring. Uh, and as I said, uh, a moronic age in which, um, in which uh, we're, we're self-moronizing. Oh, he mentioned a forbidden book. Can't have that. Uh, okay, uh, George Pazin, whom I always make an honorary Quebecer and pronounce his name as Georges Pazin. <laughs> Georges Pazin, George Pazin, says, Hi, Mark. My hockey stick arrived last week. That's the uh, Stein Online Liberty stick. Many thanks, says Georges. No, thanks to you, George. Thank you very much. Uh, they're uh, available. A limited edition. I sign and number each one. And uh, Georges, George, uh, continues, What did you think of the three university stooges testifying in front of Congress yesterday? How would you have questioned them? Re free speech versus anti-Semitism on campus. This was the thing, these three Ivy League presidents of Ivy League universities, the most prestigious schools, as they say, although I don't think anything, most of the stuff that goes on in those institutions meets the definition of a real school anymore. But anyway, these three, pre they're, they're some of the most prestigious uh, institutions on the planet. And these three Ivy League big shot presidents, uh, all women, uh, were testifying uh, to Congress and they were asked uh, by one of the people on the committee uh, whether uh, it was permissible for groups to call for the genocide of Jews uh, in, uh, uh, at those universities. And the first one to answer said, well, it depends on the context, <laughs> and thereby conveniently gave uh, the answer to the other two, who all had no idea what to say, and so basically repeated what the first one had said. And of course, we know that this is, you know, you, you only have to, I don't really like to do that exercise where people substitute the name of another group, but if you'd said, well, <clears throat> Uh, is it uh, is it acceptable for there to be uh, at your university for there to be calls for uh, all uh, Muslim for genocide against all Muslims or for genocide against all blacks? They wouldn't have been wasting their time talking about context or any rubbish uh, like that. They wouldn't have been doing that at all. And so, but but, but just putting that aside for the moment, you know. What is so, what was most striking to me about the three of them were how unimpressive they were. Uh, they were hacks. They were pathetic, awful hacks. Uh, and one has to think that, you know, those, those, those eminent positions they hold weren't, weren't earned on merit that they're somehow the, benef the beneficiary of, uh, you know, some kind of program to shatter glass ceilings of one kind or another.
but they were all to- so you felt you didn't feel you were at one point you know and this is true still in certain things when you're in the presence of uh, Larry Arn for example at Hillsdale you feel you're uh, in the presence of a genuine thinker who if you ask him a question uh, genuinely considers it from all the angles you didn't feel you're you don't feel when uh, you're talking to Larry Arn or you're asking a question of Larry Arn that you're in the presence of a hack. These people, these three were hacks. And you become, you become aware that basically, and it's a problem with America in general and it's a problem with the West in general, that we're running on fumes. But it's also a problem with the most elite and revered uh, institutions in the West, uh, such as our great universities, that they in particular are running on fumes. And that you can't, and the, and again, the skill required to reconcile all the bollocks that you do today under the name of Yale or Harvard or Princeton or whatever, uh, with your glorious past is simply a, a, it would be an intellectual feat beyond the capacity of these hacks and that's why they were so just woefully unimpressive awful and again the obvious thing <clears throat> is just to suddenly if you're talking about genocide of Jews it becomes a free speech issue that, oh, yes, well, you know, it depends on the context. And as one of them said, well, you know, uh, obviously everybody has the right to say it, uh, but there's a, a difference between uh, the speech and any action. You know, so <laughs> uh, her position is basically that, you know, you can call for genocide, um, but if you actually start killing Jews, well, we might have to look into that. Now this is this is uh, these are institutions in which uh, people who professors who've said there are only two biological sexes have had to take uh, a leave of absence. Um, if you have people who speak honestly about race and identity, like Amy Wax at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, one of the universities represented. Then they have to take. So there's obviously hypocrisy here. But the thing to me that the whole wretched business communicated overwhelmingly is, again, what I was saying earlier, the self-moronizing aspects of our society. We are consciously making ourselves more stupid. The course is... Uh, People, go, people who shouldn't be going to university go to university and they take six years to acquire a worthless bachelor's degree in something that is not a scholarly discipline. Uh, you know, all the transgender and colonialism study, all the stuff with studies at the end of it, which is uh, a word that in the context of the modern university means you don't actually study anything. And even if you do, you'd be studying something that isn't worth studying. Uh, who's just uh, started Taylor Swift studies? Anyway, that's the main takeaway for me, that you can, if you, to go back to uh, the famous line, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation, that is true. But uh, so if you are a great nation 
and then you decide to become a non-great nation, which is basically what these university presidents have decided, you can coast on your uh, legacy for decades. But we're getting to the end of that. These institutions are not going to be the great institutions of the future. They will be elsewhere. They'll be in China or they'll be in India or they'll be in Iran or whoever the hell knows. Uh, but they will be in more serious societies than us. These are great institutions that have chosen to destroy themselves. And by the way, I know people that say, oh yeah, I went to Yale, I graduated in 1958. It's gone. Your Yale's gone, your Harvard's gone. Uh, just to cite the one near me in New Hampshire. So the, one I, the only one I really know about that I occasionally motor through, Dartmouth, and I've had friends who were trustees of Dartmouth, but these institutions are gone. They're over. Forget it. Don't give money uh, to them. Uh, Chris Hall says, uh, did you see that Riley Gaines, this is more congressional, it's Congressional Testimony Day on the Mark Stein Clubland Q&A. Don't ask me why. I don't really get these. Uh, I've testified to Congress, and I certainly wouldn't waste my time doing that again. Chris Hall says, did you see that Riley Gaines took a leaf out of the Mark Stein playbook for how to testify before a congressional committee. Riley Gaines is, I think she's, you know, 22 or something. She's very young, but uh, she's an American female who doesn't like the idea uh, that there's no American women's sports anymore because all the sporting contests are full of trannies uh, as I said, uh, packing a little uh, extra in their gusset. You know, joke trannies like Leah Thomas. They're not even making any effort. Um, and um, and uh, she was called to testify and some Democrat congresswoman called her transphobic and she pushed back, which people don't do against these crappy legislators. And that's why Chris Hall says it's a leaf out of the Mark Stein playbook. When Judith Curry and I push back against Ed Markey, this grotesque, again, these, again, awful people, these awful, hideous senators and congressmen who, you know, if you ask them something, then uh, one of the minders sitting behind them hurriedly whispers something in their ear or passes them a piece of paper. Uh, so they know how to respond. So we were up against Senator Ed Markey and pushed back against him uh, and uh, talking, talking rubbish about uh, uh, global warming. Awful, awful. And he was so rude to, to Judith Curry, who's a great scientist. So we pushed back against him. And I was glad to see, uh, you know, that Riley Gaines did the same to this ridiculous congresswoman. People should. You're a republic. I keep hearing that. I keep hearing you're a republic. When I went to testify at that stinking congress of yours... I was warned beforehand, oh, can you tell, can you just ask Mark to tone it down a bit so he's not disrespectful of the senators? If you're not disrespectful of your senators, uh, you're not doing it right and your republic's going to die. I never had anyone say that to me uh, when I testified, you know, at the Parliament of Canada or spoke at the Parliament of Australia or, you know, even provincial legislatures, Queen's Park 
in Ontario. Now, oh, you've got to be careful to be respectful. Why? Why? They're uh, legislators and I'm a member of the public. Why, well, you know, we're not talking about a peasant beseeching the emperor, although Ed Markey thinks of himself like that, and no doubt the stupid congresswoman Riley Gaines got the better of thought of like that. But, you know, these are, um, th th this is, we are in a crisis here. And it doesn't mean you have to be rude to them. Markey was rude to Judith Curry. And this congresswoman was rude uh, to Riley Gaines. And certainly in a real republic, the citizen is allowed to push back against that. Uh, Leo VT, which I always thought was Leo from Vermont, uh, but actually is Le VT are uh, the initials of his, uh, the rest of his name. So I was wrong about him being from Vermont. Mark, glad you're back in the harness. Curious about your thoughts on Hit Wilders. Will he be able to cobble together a coalition? And if so, will that have an effect in Brussels? Yeah, he won the election. That's to say he, he got the highest uh, number of seats in the Dutch legislature in uh, in the election that was held, but uh, it, it's not enough for him to uh, form a majority government because there's bazillions of parties, and so he has to find at least uh, two, three, four others who will be with him before he'll have enough seats to govern. But he won the election, so he should have the first right to try and put it uh, together. The question is what they will, uh, what they'll actually demand from him um, to to go so he's in the thing look do I want to be prime minister and actually have a chance to implement some of my program or uh, would I rather you know uh, say I'm not going to compromise on this and I'm not going to compromise on that and then you never become prime minister and one of these awful uh, uniparty squishes uh, just uh, puts together some coalition and life carries on as before. I'm, I'm confident uh, when I look at the numbers that he can maybe just about do it. The question is, people have to stop saying, because all these people, a lot of these other parties, have, oh, yes, I've got, I would never work with uh, Wilders. Uh, he's a threat to democracy. The guy who won the election is the threat to democracy. Uh, that's not how it works. And that way of keeping poli that the same, the same thing about the AFD in uh, Germany, the alternative for Deutschland, and this determination to restrict the choice you have, it's not democracy. If you just say, I made this point over 20 years ago when said European politics and same in uh, America and uh, same in a lot of other places, degenerated to a choice between a left of centre party and an ever so slightly right of left of centre party. And that isn't the choice that people want now. People actually, there are people on big issues. You can't have a thing saying that whoever you vote for the big questions you really care about, like mass immigration, camp of the saints type scenarios, uh, 
the point I made about the Irish, uh, they didn't vote for it, but they're going to be a minority in their own country uh, in 30 years. Uh, you have to be able... There's no point to democracy if it's just dinner theatre nibbling at the margins, which is what Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer want, which is uh, what somebody like Liz Cheney wants. Liz Cheney, who's apparently thinking of going third party, or Robert Kagan, you know, the big neocon who wrote that totally crap book about American power. Uh, a warning about uh, the dictator Trump could be uh, launching the second phase of his dictatorship in a year. This is, this is ridiculous. And he's saying, will no one uh, defend American democracy? Basically, if you keep saying this guy is so popular, he's a threat to democracy, you're not really thinking about it right. You know, that this idea that politics is a... Pro Robert Kagan doesn't have a base. Liz Cheney doesn't have a base. You know, this, this idea that uh, people who want to broaden politics to encompass the real concerns of the demos, of the citizenry, are the threat to democracy is actually why uh, politics is decaying dangerously. Um, Pete uh, Procopia. Wow, this is a long. <laughs> this is a long question. Oh, I, I. This is what we talked about earlier. Did you know that calling for the genocide of Jews is not necessarily a violation of the standards of? Yeah, look, the the most inimical places to free speech in the Western world are American universities. They're all about the safe spaces. They're all about the triggering. Books that every other generation was at, were able to read and evaluate are now too touchy for, uh, for uh, um, uh, American students. Oh, no, we can't read Huckleberry Finn uh, because it's got a word in that's going to trigger people. You know, that's okay. But Jews, apparently... Uh, are uh, genetically incapable of being triggered. So you can have people marching around shouting death to, the, death to all the Jews, kill all the Jews, gas the Jews, and uh, that's just a grand celebration of free speech in institutions that otherwise have no regard for free speech. That, as you know, uh, Bennington College uh, invited Charles Murray to speak, and people found that so objectionable they beat up the liberal professor, lady professor, who, uh, who, who invited him and put her in the hospital. Um, because you can't have Charles Murray speak at an American university. You can't have Anne Coulter speak at an American university. But you can shout death to the Jews. So uniquely, uniquely, the Jews do not, cannot be triggered, do not require safe spaces. It's all rubbish. It's evil. Um, it is evil. But as I said, for me, uh, there's two things. The cowardice of those three professors um, and, their, uh, and their obvious fear of upsetting hardcore leftists 
at the university, but also just the sheer stupidity. These people aren't fit. You know, I take it they've got a bunch uh, in all these universities where as you approach the president's office, there's a corridor lined with the walls of all the previous uh, professors going back uh, down through the decades. And these three are not in this. These three are unworthy of their positions. They're hacks because of this self more this self uh, moronizing thing, which is uh, which is wrecking basically uh, wrecking uh, America. And it's that was what was so pitiful. Uh, about what was uh, on display there. Um, let's pause. I'm running out of puff a bit here. Uh, let's pause for a brief respite from the hell of the headlines and uh, tip our hat to the season because it's Christmas and, uh, and um, we need a little Christmas, as Jerry Herman once said. Uh, this piece of music is only 90 years old. It's from 1934. Uh, the same year as Santa Claus is coming to town. I say only 90 years old because it's so perfect for this time of year that it seems as if it has always been with us. Hop aboard. <laughs> Thank you. 
The Chicago Symphony, conducted by Fritz Reiner and the famous Troika by Prokofiev from the film and the subsequent orchestral suite, Lieutenant Kije. That's not a Troika in the sense of the three judges presiding over my kangaroo court at the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal. Screw those guys. This is a real troika in the sense of a three-horse, three-horse open sleigh. Beats jingle bells any day. You know, the only flaw with that is that Prokofiev wraps the whole thing up in a smidgen over two and a half minutes. And what with the slow beginning and slow ending, the actual zippy three-horse sleigh ride is barely a minute and a half. So I don't really feel I got my money's worth on that Troika. Get that sleigh back here and let's take it round again. go the sort of finnegan orchestra on a midnight sleigh ride do you know eddie sorter and bill finnegan they were terrific big band arrangers for 
Tommy Dorsey, Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, Artie Shaw, and then they teamed up on a band of their own. I don't know whether Prokofiev ever heard that arrangement. Uh, It came out in 1952, the year before he died, but it's a corker. Uh, very percussive, love the low brass and the high woodwind. It's uh, it's great fun, that. Mark Stein's uh, Clubland Q&A, live around the planet. It's 17 to 9. Greenwich Mean Time, a little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. So let us get back to your questions. John Weatherford says, Greetings, Mark. Great to hear your voice, despite all that you find yourself having to deal with this Christmas season. Two consequential centenarians died these past few days, Henry Kissinger and Norman Lear. The former helped shape the world we find ourselves in through China policy. The latter helped shape the culture in America, at least, through sitcoms. Any thoughts on either, Mark? Wishing you and your family a merry, healthy and peaceful Christmas. Eric Dale adds, uh, What are your thoughts on the passing of Henry Kissinger? Would you say he was the great thinker and statesman, as some are claiming, or one of the very men who turned the world against the West? Um, let's get uh, Norman Lear out of the way first. You know, there are great... He, For people who don't know him, he was a sitcom producer and he produced all the sitcoms that got uh, rave reviews and were critically admired in the 1970s, like Maud with the great B. Arthur. She was the first sitcom heroine, that's the word, first lead character in a sitcom, the first to have a name in the show to get an abortion. So Maud got an abortion, that was the big plot twist. Uh, if you watch I Love Lucy, Lucy didn't get an abortion. If you watch the Mary Tyler Moore show, Mary didn't get an abortion. What's interesting to me is that, as I said, they were critically acclaimed, those shows. They were, they were left-wing agitprop. He was, he was, you know, a committed left-wing guy. Um, and uh, uh, But it came at the price, for me personally, it came at the price of the, well, not for me personally, actually, because you don't even see Maud on the rerun channels. You know, if you're sitting in a motel room at uh, two in the morning and you can't sleep and you go down the dial, you, you can still find I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke show and the Mary Tyler Moore show and MASH and Cheers and Frasier and whatever all out there somewhere on some channel or other. You couldn't, you couldn't, Maud didn't, you know, people can't watch Maud 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after it was made because uh, the agitprop came at the expense of the comedy. Now, there was an exception to that, All in the Family, which was the American version of uh, a British show called Till Death Us Do Part, uh, and instead of, uh, and I found the, the British show rather sort of uh, grittier, as, as they often are. And uh, the, the character Alf Garnett, who was this sort of reactionary man horrified by the modern world, uh, was replaced by Archie Bunker. And the thing about Archie Bunker is that he became... Uh, he he was you, you were supposed to laugh at him, 
You were supposed to uh, condescend to him, to despise him. And in fact, he became the most popular character in the show. And, it's, and it, was very, it, it was very interesting, uh, that. Hi there, I believe we are back now, but perhaps someone could let me know if uh, we're not, because I don't want to be wasting my time talking to myself. I don't know quite what happened there, but uh, in the middle of <laughs> some friend of Norman Lear, perhaps, who didn't uh, agree with what I was saying about how his current up-to-the-minute uh, acclaimed politically edgy sitcoms had dated far more than I Love Lucy or The Dick Van Dyke Show or The Bob Newhart Show or The Mary Tyler Moore Show or whatever it was. But if someone could let me know whether we are in fact still on the air, it would greatly be appreciated. Um, but uh, let's, get, uh, let's get back to your questions because it's a bit unfair if... Uh, uh, they were all, uh, uh, we all get cut out. No, I'm, I'm sorry about that. And we'll try and go a little longer to get a bit more of your questions and make sure we do uh, get some of your questions. in. I didn't get to Henry Kissinger. And uh, the interesting uh, thing about that is I, I never met Norman Lear, but I ran into Henry Kissinger from time to time uh, about this, that and the other. And... Um, it was always, and in fact, actually, he went that line I used about how China will get old before it gets rich. Uh, he, in fact, uh, started using that line as as well. Henry Kissinger was a brilliant man, and this idea that it divides into people who I saw what was I thought rather a bit of a suck up piece uh, by Andrew Roberts. Uh, and then I saw others for whom he's always going to be the Dr. Strangelove character. I think it's possible to think... What's interesting to me is that he's a he was a brilliant man who understood a lot of things about the balance of power, but got the absolutely central question of our time wrong. So that he thought it was important to reach out to China to drive a wedge between China and Russia because he feared a united communist front uh, would prove too much for America. Now, in fact, Russia and China, all kinds of people won the outs with uh, Russia to one degree, the Soviet Union to one degree or another, uh, Tito in Yugoslavia, Ceausescu in Romania. The idea that you had to do what Henry Kissinger did with China uh, in order to uh, make an even bigger wedge, I, I think turned out to be hopelessly wrong. In effect, Henry Kissinger's outreach to China, again, to use an old line of mine, enabled China to come up with the only economically viable form of communism that has yet been managed. Um, so I thought that was a... Uh, are, we on, are we on the air? Are we, are we going out now? Are we still going? Uh, if anyone could, uh, if uh, <clears throat> if uh, part of the vast team of Mark Stein Enterprises could let me know whether, in fact, we're um, uh, actually uh, going out, it would it would help uh, me. Uh, I don't I don't like to complain, um, but at any rate, um, uh, so that that's what I feel about about Henry uh, Kissinger. There, that wasn't a. 
uh, that that uh, I, he got the central question wrong, and uh, because of that, we can't really. I mean. I don't think he thought about economics in the way he did, but you can't think about geopolitics when your rival power uh, supplies everything in most Americans' homes. Uh, I mentioned that my daughter was uh, just back from Africa, and she was giving me a great long list of infrastructure projects that the Chinese have funded, in Kenya and places. So we enabled uh, the rise of China to global dominance, and Henry Kissinger played a, a big part in that, and I think he, he got that, uh, essentially got, got that great, ge the central, uh, well, it became the central geopolitical question of our time uh, because of the uh, decisions he, uh, he made. Um, let's, uh, let's, uh, I, for some reason, the questions are all sort of, uh, gotten into a different order. Don't quite know how that happens. Suzanne Rennie says, speaking of departing politicians, as we were at the top of the show, um, uh, uh, uh do you think Trudeau will resign soon or will he hold on for dear life until he's sunk the libs? into oblivion uh you're you're saying he's gonna he's going the same way as jacinda ardern or nicola in new zealand or nicola sturgeon in scotland uh where it looks like there was a kind of mass clear out of the um uh, the the uh the covid era liberals i don't think so you know the arithmetic is much more complicated in Canada, because Trudeau was not successful in his bid for re-election. But nevertheless, because of the way the map comes, um, you, you can actually wind up staying as prime minister, you know, with 32% of the vote. Uh, because uh, the other left-wing party, the NDP and the uh, Bloc Québécois, in the end, uh, you can kind of rely on them to keep the Conservatives out of power. And then you have the different regional permutations where the Liberals, in fact, um, can, can organise the map to their advantage. So Trudeau could actually... Trudeau, if you're thinking of it from his point of view, he figures he can get a lot more unpopular and still hold on to being Prime Minister. And the question you have to ask is... What's he, you know, with Jacinda Ardern, who went from being uh, New Zealand's prime minister, she got a damehood and then is something to do with uh, the Prince of Wales now on some big whoop-de-doo institution uh, that he's doing. Then you think someone like Mark Carney, who was the governor of the Bank of Canada, who, who then became governor of the Bank of England, and you think being governor of two G7 central banks would be enough for any man. But no, then he becomes a big whoop de doo uh, at the, with all the Davos crowd. So I think, like Jacinda, like Mark Carney, Jason Trudeau isn't going anywhere unless he's got an even bigger World Economic Forum gig lined up. Unless, you know, uh, Klaus Schwab decides he wants to make him deputy head of the World Economic Forum. I don't think he's planning on going anywhere. Uh, Chris Hall says, the recent tragic story of the baby Indy in the UK 
reminds one of the myriad other cases of the National Health Service essentially becoming a death row prison, refusing to allow patients to leave even when there is no rational impediment with respect to cost or liability. What weird thought process motivates these people? Well, it isn't a weird thought process because it gets back to that exchange in the uh, Congress um, between Riley Gaines and that Democrat congresswoman who said, oh, you're a transphobe. And Riley Gaines pushed back and said, oh, yeah, well, you're a misogynist. And the Democrat congresswoman's position, if she was honest, was that that doesn't really uh, matter um, because uh, the... Um, the uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm having a lot of technical uh, issues here today. I'm very sorry about that. That doesn't really matter for her, the Democrat congresswoman, because the thing is, it's about power and the uses of power. So she doesn't care about screwing over women by having all these people with penises competing in the women's sports, because the important thing is to destroy. So the what you accomplish by destroying biological sex, uh, by destroying the facts of life, by undermining the facts of life so that there is no firm ground for society to stand on, is more important to her. And likewise at the NHS, this was a little baby with a terrible uh, illness, but the parents, uh, so the NHS decided to pull the plug on the kid. And the parents objected to this, and they found a hospital in Italy that would have been prepared to treat the child. You know, you're parents of a child. You want your child to stay alive, and you're prepared to do what it takes to keep the child alive. And basically, the uh, hospital denied the parents the right to remove the child from their non-care and fly the baby to Italy for some actual care. I don't know whether that would have made any difference to the eventual outcome. But the hospital, the purpose of this is to teach the lesson, uh, which comes with government health care to one degree or another, always does, that basically uh, the, the, when the state runs your health care, you and your body are basically, and your children's bodies, are creatures of the, of the state. And that's an overriding that's that's a critical lesson. Now, when you're a grown-up and the hospital says, oh, we're not going to treat you anymore, you're dying, you can say, well, screw you, I'm out of here, and, uh, and, and get up and uh, go somewhere else. When you're a kid, they don't want to let you do that. And again, all these things have the same thing in common. They're exercises in power. And so uh, they take the side of the side that, and uh, they always take the side that advances their power interest. That doesn't matter whether it's the Democrat congresswoman in that exchange, or whether it's um, the uh, the in the whole business with um, uh, with right uh, with uh, with this poor little poor little baby. Uh, Mark Lipniaki says, I hope I pronounced that right. Compliments of the season, Mark. I very much hope you are on the end, on the mend, in spite of the best efforts of the dreaded medical centre. This rather begs the question of what exactly has gone wrong with medicine in the West and how to fix it. Happy St. Nicholas Day, which it is indeed. 6th of December. Um, 
yeah, I don't know whether I'd make any point. I, I mean, I've had people say, oh, you know, particularly in socialized systems, you'd give anything for a second opinion. I've had the benefit now of uh, um, uh, at one time or another since I had my uh, first, it's basically I'm celebrating the first anniversary of my uh, heart attacks, first two heart attacks, and I've had the benefit of medical treatment, I think, in six countries. Uh, the uh, France, uh, the UK, Canada, the US, Italy, I've forgotten one. It'll come to me. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is I find the American situation, the, the UK is terrible, absolutely terrible. It's a disaster. The, uh, the United Kingdom has degenerated into a totally dysfunctional uh, government health system with a tiny, uh, shriveled little sovereign state attached to it, uh, in the same way that the big US automakers basically degenerated into pension plans with a tiny little car manufacturing plant attached to it. So, uh, so, that's, so put the UK out of it. Uh, and I, I was just talking about this with, um, with someone who's going to be on our Christmas Eve show. You know, I think the Canadian system, you need to, you basically, what matters is whether you've got someone powerful enough on your side who can uh, make all the things align for you. Uh, the French system is actually, I found it extremely good. The trouble is, it's not clear to me the French state can actually afford it in in the long run. But the American one, there are all kinds of other issues. Uh, I mentioned that I went for, I, I was told I needed a blood transfusion. Somebody got the, the doctor got my blood tests. It was a Saturday in the middle of the afternoon in Vermont. I needed a blood transfusion. They called me up and said, you need to get to a hospital now and get a blood transfusion. Well, for whatever, they were all set to give me the blood transfusion at the University of Vermont Medical Center when the administrator came down. Now I've got a Cadillac plan or whatever it's called, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. I play a fortune for it, thousands and thousands of dollars every month. And this was the first time I actually needed anything from it. And the administrator comes down and says, oh, no, we're not going to give you, you're not going to give you the blood transfusion. I don't know why. I think it was, you know, I, I don't like to think it was politics, but I actually do think it was politics. Uh, because my uh, general practitioner, my GP in New Hampshire, said, you know, you should definitely have had that. I was very lucky in that I was 20 minutes south of the border. It's in Burlington, Vermont. So I could actually be driven fast to another country to get the blood transfusion necessary to keep me alive. What I found interesting about that was that I subsequently got a bill. Uh, the, the, the hospital's bill for not performing any medical care was $7,600. That's, that's what Fletcher Allen, the University of Vermont Medical Center, charges for not giving you any medical care. I didn't get any medical care when I was there. I was basically lying down on a hospital bed. The only thing I got from the hospital was a can of uh, Minute Maid apple juice, tiny little miniature can. And uh, that's uh, the cost of that. The market cost of that is $7,600. So I don't think there's any market price. When they say, oh, well, we've got a free market in healthcare, there's no market price. That's not a market price for a can of apple juice, $7,600. The thing is a racket. 
And my, my concern is that almost everything in America, whether it's waging war for 20 years in Afghanistan or denying me a blood transfusion, um, becomes a racket. And then you have the additional problem, which is that Americans, as RFK Jr. likes to say, Americans are the most over-medicated people on the planet um, because the system in America is most responsive to the needs of Pfizer and co. And yet they have the worst health outcomes on the planet, in particularly with respect to kids. I think, you know, that's a great issue for him to run on and it shouldn't actually be a... Um, it shouldn't actually be a uh, a partisan issue that it should be planned. But instead, you know, it's obviously so important to the pharmaceutical industrial uh, complex that uh, they're determined to destroy RFK Jr. Patrick Pierce says, my question for you today, Mark, now that mostly the pandemonium panic is over, are we not seeing any real mask effectiveness studies being undertaken to either confirm or refute major skepticism about their use? Surely there are enough great minds out there to sort this out, or is there another agenda preventing such research? That goes for every aspect of the last four years. Uh, not just with... Uh, there are studies that show these mask things, mask mandates are, are completely ineffectual, and that wearing masks is bad for you. We know that wearing masks is bad for children. They miss out on, you, you know, if you're a two, three, four-year-old child and, you, uh, and your development is aided by visual cues, having everyone in masks uh, stunts your development, which now we've got an entire damaged generation of children. We know that. Then we know with grown-ups uh, ingesting the particles by wearing the same stupid crappy mask all day long. And then we have the studies showing that, in fact, uh, the COVID is able to pass in and out through the mask. And even if you wear seven masks, like uh, that fool Fauci. The why is it? But the bigger question is, why are we not? So you would think, would you not, uh, that if after all these years that there would be there would be more studies that we would be able to answer some of these questions uh, definitively, the reason we don't is because the governments don't want definitive answers to those questions. We've just seen in New Zealand this whistleblower who's leaked uh, extraordinary information uh, from various batches of COVID vaccine, showing that, for, for example, that uh, with some batches, they, 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 you can go on and you can, all the batches are numbered, and you can see that the first batch killed uh, over 20% of the recipients. This is according to the data that he has, uh, this guy has released. And then you see others, you go down the lid, there's others, they kill, you know, other batches killed, 17%, 15%, 12%, 10%. And then this one batch that was uh, given to far more, they made far more of it than the other batches. And that nevertheless killed 5% of people, which turned out to be, now it's interesting, over 800 people just dead from that one batch, according to what this whistleblower says. But New Zealand and Australia are interesting because they sealed themselves off from the world. So they didn't have a lot of COVID. 
So uh, when they then start getting all these excess deaths, you can't say, oh, well, this is long COVID because they barely had any short COVID. So they didn't have COVID. They had minimal cases of COVID. But, and yet they have uh, comparable uh, phenomenon uh, to the big COVID countries of these excess deaths. And then we've, so now we've had this guy uh, leak all this data. I don't know whether this data's right. It's all anonymized and all the rest of it. And there's things he might not have done correctly. But if you were interested, the government would say, oh, no, no, batch one, when he says that it killed over 20% of the people who took it. That's not actually true. Uh, batch, batch one uh, killed, well, it did kill a few people, but they were mostly people in their uh, late 80s and 90s, you know. They, you do something like with underlying conditions. You do something like that. Instead, they arrested him and have put him on trial uh, for accessing data for improper use. Now, I find this interesting. If you were interested in actually having a... And it goes to the COVID inquiry in London, too, where Boris Johnson has lost all his WhatsApp messages. If you were really interested in having a proper accounting of the COVID years, uh, you would not be doing what they're doing in New Zealand, what they're doing in the United Kingdom, what they're doing in America, where they are governments of whatever stripe are all behaving like uh, guilty parties. Uh, and they're either obfuscating, as they are in London, or saying the only problem is we didn't look down earlier. They're uh, arresting and charging the whistleblowers, as in New Zealand. The governments are all uh, behaving in uh, as guilty parties. Alyssa Angel says, stabs and jabs. Are those two ways to reduce the surplus population, Ebenezer? I listened to your fabulous reading of Dickens' A Christmas Carol last night. Yes, uh, I loved reading. I thought I'd, in, in, at first I thought I knew that too well, and I wouldn't enjoy reading it. And in fact, I loved reading uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and we will be featuring that in the run-up to Christmas Day. Uh, here at Stein Online. So thank you for those kind words, Elisa. Uh, uh, My Elisa, I think you say, yeah. My question really is this. Aren't both the vax jabs and allowing the influx of... Oh, this is... Yeah, yeah I headlined the piece earlier today, stabs and jabs, because that's basically what the Western world is becoming now. You can get jabbed with the COVID vaccine or you can get stabbed by one of the uh, uh, excitable young Mohammedan lads. My question really is this, aren't both the vax jabs and allowing the influx of jihadist stabby stabbers two methods employed by the globalist overlords and their minions to reach their publicly stated depopulation goals? And does my asking make me a tin hat wearing conspiracy theorist? You know who was talking about reducing the population a couple of days ago? I think it was in The Guardian or somewhere. Michael E. Mann. The guy who's suing me at the Washington, D.C. Superior uh, Court. And maybe we will bring this up when he's in the witness box. But you make a good point. Uh, I think I was talking about this a couple of weeks back. That when you look at what the effect of strange public policies that do not seem 
beneficial on their face. But what's the effect? Now, you mentioned uh, jihadists stabbing us. That's kind of actually not a... That's a manpower-intensive way to reduce population. Then you talk about these COVID vaccines. If these New Zealand figures are correct, um, that is a actually... And, and you've got batches that kill uh, 15 to 20% of the people who get them. That actually is a good population reduction measure. Then when you look at something like uh, the transgender fad, you know, where everyone thinks, oh, look, uh, my kid's nine. Uh, uh, and I always loved her. She was just like a beautiful little girl and all like playing with her dollies and everything. But now she's decided she wants to be a boy. And well, you know, that's just the way it is now, isn't it? We just, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's just a social construct, your gender. So uh, last Tuesday, she was a girl, but uh, next uh, Thursday, she's going to be a boy. And we think it's cute. Be who you are. You know, you, you, you learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Uh, but uh, you change your mind when you get to 17 or 23 or 37 and you reverse transition back into the girl you once were, but you're permanently infertile. So if you have these extraordinary numbers of some American uh, middle schools where people are in... And, it's not just having the surgery. Once you introduce the concept of selecting your own gender or being non-binary, you know, people don't stay non-binary for that long. They, they eventually plump for one team or another. That too is the effect of uh, making you infertile and, again, putting the Western world out of business. Switzerland... Uh, just the other day, announced the all-time lowest birth rates in that. So we are literally putting ourselves out of business. And when you look at what's behind, as I said, what what happened? Oh, we've got excess deaths. Oh, really? Yeah, and, and it seems to, even the ones who don't die, it's the women, it seems to interfere with their fertility. Oh, really? And anyway, uh, you know, even if they're women who uh, decide they want to be men, uh, that interferes with their fertility. So all these things have something in common, uh, which is that they reduce the likelihood of any demographic recovery in the West. And that's why people, uh, that's why you don't have to be a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist uh, to think that there, that there might be, uh, there might be something uh, up with it. Uh, that that's I'm I'm a bit I'm so I apologize for the technical uh, problems. I could uh, go into a, a great long list of details as to why that's happening, but it would bore the pants off you. So I'm very sorry uh, about that, which has slightly diminished the technical competence of the show today. But we'll try and do better next time. Um, Christmas at Stein Online. We like Christmas here and. It's, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I'm worried our entire... The, the reason we do some of the things that, you know, when people say, oh, you're not talking about Nikki Haley. Well, I, Nikki Haley's a waste of time. Nikki Haley is a hollow creature. Um, Robert Kagan, uh, you know, who's worried about the Trump dictatorship. If you don't know who he is, he's a big neocon, wrote a terrible book on American power that I uh, reviewed... 
uh, and I think it, it explains his stupidity and complacency, Robert Kagan, helps explain why America can't win wars, why it runs around the Hindu Kush for 20 years before losing to goat herds with fertilizer. Robert Kagan. He's married to Victoria Newland, who's one of these people you can't vote for or against Victoria Newland anywhere. But somehow, whatever, whoever you do vote for, she winds up in the government. She was like Deputy National Security Advisor under Dick Cheney. Then she was something or other under, uh, under Obama, uh, interfering in the politics of Ukraine, now running the Ukraine war, admitting to the biolabs America has opened up in Ukraine. Um, these people aren't any use to you. They're the death of your republic. Uh, Nikki Haley... Uh, doesn't believe in anything. That's the awful. Again, I th the takeaway from those three presidents is that they're hacks. The takeaway from Nikki Haley's answer to the uh, whatever it was, the twelve-year-old who wants a sex change question, is that she's a hack. She doesn't believe anything, and we're be we're gonna lose everything. We're gonna lose everything, which is why. I'm glad Elisa liked my reading of uh, Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens because when you lose your future, you always lose your past. So it doesn't matter what bit of the past you like. You might not care for Charles Dickens. You might like uh, 1950s rockabilly. Uh, you might like the golden age of Canadian hockey uh, with Guy Lafleur and uh, Monsieur Beliveau and all the rest. You're not going to, when you lose your future, you lose your past because the past gets evaporated, which is why in small ways we do our best to keep the past alive here on uh, Stein Online. So this is a rather unusual Christmas song that I hadn't really thought about until Tim Rice was enthusing about it on the Mark Stein Christmas show one year. By the way, Tim is uh, going to be with us on Seven Aid Radio this weekend, uh, Sunday, 5.30 GMT. Um, and this song features Kirsty McCall. Kirsty was the daughter of Ewan McCall, who wrote a very great song, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, uh, which you will know if uh, from Roberta Flack, and it's in the Clint Eastwood film, play Misty for me. And Kirsty was, like her dad, was a very talented singer-songwriter in her own right. I met her when she had a big hit with There's a guy works down the chip shop, swears he's Elvis. We won some show together, and I was doing some classical thing. Uh, talking about classical music for some reason. And someone asked whether there was anything in classical music, like There's a guy works down the chip shop, swears he's Elvis. And I said, well, in fact, that song was adapted from an older work called There's a Guy Works Down the Chip Shop, Swears He's Rimsky-Korsakov, uh, which isn't the greatest joke in the world, but it made Kirsty laugh. And my young self was very chuffed by that. Uh, Kirsty McCall died an appalling death on vacation in Mexico 20 years ago. She and her young sons were in the water, diving, and they surfaced to find a powerboat that should not have been in that area coming straight at them. And Kirsty shoved her kids out the way with all the force a mother has. She saved their lives, and the boat hit her head on. 
It belonged to a big shot Mexican businessman uh, who was said to be at the wheel, uh, but he supposedly paid an impoverished deckhand to take the rap for it. You know how that goes. Uh, this is a rather odd Christmas duet between Kirsty and Shane McGowan of the Pogues. And a couple of days ago, I saw that Shane McGowan is now also gone. Uh, Kirsty and Shane McGowan both gone. I was talking yesterday to one of the special guests, another special guest, who'll be on our Christmas Eve show. And at one point, uh, she had the same producer in Dublin as the Pogue. So this song came up in our conversation. And in memory of both the late Miss McCall and now the late Mr. McGowan, uh, I thought we'd tip our hat to it. Somewhat circuitously. If you ever go across the sea to Ireland Then maybe at the closing of your day You will sit and watch the moon rise over Claddagh and watch the barefoot gossoons at their play Just to hear again the ripple of the trout stream The women in the meadows making hair And to sit beside a turf fire in the cabin and see the sun go down on Galway Bay. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Tim Rice is raving about the Pogues and you're playing Bing Crosby. What's up with that, Stein? Well, uh, that song is by Arthur Collahan, a doctor with the British Army Medical Corps who spent most of his life in Leicester in the English Midlands, but grew up in Galway and in 1947, five years before he died, decided to write a song about it and somehow got it to Bing, who sent it around the world. And the reason I mention it is that in this unlikely Pogues uh, Christmas Eve a dramatic narrative, the protagonist is in the drunk tank at a New York police station and, quote, the boys of the NYPD choir were singing Galway Bay, unquote. The NYPD doesn't actually have a choir, but they do have the pipes and drums of the NYPD Emerald Society, who turn up in the Pogues rock video for this song. And you know I love musical annotations, so I'll give you one more from right up front at uh, the beginning of the song. It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, won't see another one. And then he sang a song, The Rare Old Mountain Dew. I turned my face away and dreamed about you. And The Rare Old Mountain Dew is not about uh, the sickly soda pop, uh, but uh, Irish Moonshine, written in 1882, this song, by a very early Broadway star, Ned Harrigan, and his father-in-law, David Brahm. And here are the Pogues and the Dubliners teaming up on an almost 140-year-old song. Oh, let the grasses grow and the waters flow in a free and easy way. 
But give me enough of the rare old stuff that's made near Galway Bay. Come gouges all from Donegal, Sligo and Leitrim too. And we'll give them the slip and we'll take a sip of the rail old mountain dew. Skiddy I did little dumps, skiddy I did little dumps, skiddy I'm a diddle little dumps. Maybe BBC disc jockey Alex Dyke is right and this hugely popular UK Christmas hit is just uh, an offensive pile of downmarket chav bilge. But I think what elevates it from uh, just the usual Brits on the piss puke along is the precision of its imagery. I confess that until... Uh, Tim mentioned it. I'd never attended to the number in any detail. The song is written by the Pogues, Jem Finer and Shane McGowan. And I think the vividness of the scene, uh, of the drama, is very skillfully done in the text here. Christmas Eve, Sinatra is swinging, the drunks are sleeping it off, and here are Kirsty McCall and the Pogues and the fairy tale of New York. It was Christmas Eve, babe In the drunk tank An old man said to me Won't see another one And then he sang a song The rare old mountain dew I turned my face away Dreamed about you Got on the lucky one Came in like to one I've got a feeling This year's for me and you So happy Christmas I love you baby I can see a better time When all our dreams come true Someone. Well, so could anyone. 
is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.